If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles now to Romans 9. We saw last week that this is uh, kind of a divine commentary on what we've just heard from Genesis chapter 25. So we'll look at Romans 9. Paul says, Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who who are children of Abraham... Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what he promised, what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that's going to be Esau and Jacob, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say, then, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, 
they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I ask today with a great need, great desire for this church that you would just pour out your grace on us today. God, for for me specifically, I pray that you would give me the grace to preach your word truly, clearly, and sensitively. God, I pray for all of us that we would have the grace from you to see and understand the truths you've revealed to us in your word. God, give us the grace to not only see and understand, but to believe by faith all that you reveal to us. And Father God, I pray that you would fill all of us with humility rather than pride as we learn and uh, enjoy and exult in these truths. And God, I pray that you would give us an ample grace for unity. God, as we understand these uh, things that we will be talking about to sometimes be divisive issues, I pray for your grace to have the unity that Christ Jesus purchased for us. That even if we don't see eye to eye, we can love one another. We can treat one another with respect. God, give us the grace to glorify you in all we do, all we say, and all that we think. And finally, God, I pray for the grace of salvation for any and all in this room who have not yet trusted upon your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we need you. All of these things we cannot do on our own. Yet we need them so desperately, all of these graces. So we beseech you for them this morning. In your son's name, amen. Well, last week we began to explore from Genesis 25 this question of why Jacob? Why, why Jacob? Uh, we, we saw that it would be the, the older that would serve the younger, meaning that it would be Jacob that would receive God's covenant blessings rather than his older twin brother Esau. So he was going to be this recipient of this special grace, this uh, special blessing both in temporal ways but also in eternal ways. He was going to be uh, the one through whom God's plan of redemption would be fulfilled, not his brother Esau. 
And so we had this question, why Jacob? Why, why Jacob, God? Why not Esau? Why, why Jacob? And so we asked a couple questions of Genesis 25, and we said, well, was there something special about Jacob? Was there something uh, intrinsically about him that made him a better candidate for receiving this, this covenant uh, blessing from God? And our answer, uh, in, in brief, was no. He was actually a terrible candidate uh, to receive this blessing from God. Um, we saw that the birth order was backwards from their, their cultural norms. He didn't have any more legitimate birth than Esau. They were twins from the same parents, unlike, you know, Ishmael and Isaac. We saw that Jacob wasn't loved anymore by his father. In fact, Jacob loved Esau more than, 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 uh, than, than Jacob. Sorry, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. We saw that he wasn't a better uh, leadership material or stronger. And we saw, we saw that he didn't even have better character or stronger faith than his brother. I mean, his name literally means supplanter or heel grabber, that he is one who doesn't trust God, but has to gain things for himself. That's what his name means, and his life plays that out um, for a very, very long time. Well, and then we said, okay, he was a terrible candidate, but maybe, maybe God was just looking ahead Maybe God was looking ahead and, and knew something about Jacob that maybe we don't know yet in Genesis 25. Maybe God looked ahead and saw some eventual good works of uh, Jacob. Maybe God looked ahead and saw some eventual faith even in Jacob. And maybe that is why he was the recipient of this covenant blessing. But our answer to that was, uh, just very plain from God's word, is the fact that God never just foreknows anything. We saw that he isn't just a, a fortune teller, someone who can see, you know, the future, and so he tells us what's going to happen. No, no, we saw specifically from Isaiah chapter 46 that God foreknows and can foretell because he is the one who is foreplanning and he is the one who is bringing his plans to fruition. So God never just foreknows anything that he tells us will happen. It is a part of God's plan, and it is God who will bring those things to be. So this blessing coming to Jacob wasn't just God foreknowing that maybe he would do good works, or maybe that he would have this faith even. It was a part of God's plan. And so we said, if there was nothing special about Jacob— and we said if God wasn't just foreseeing something that would happen in Jacob's life or, or that he would respond in faith, then we are left with only one answer. And that answer was that the reason, uh, the answer to why Jacob is, is that because God chose him. I worded that badly, but I hope you got what I was saying. The, the, the answer is the reason Jacob received these covenant blessings rather than Esau is that God specifically chose him to receive that blessing based on nothing in himself, not based on some foreknowledge of a way Jacob would respond. God chose him. And we know this to be true. I'm not guessing when I say that because you could say, well, you're just, you know, making a, an argument out of silence. It doesn't tell us why, so you're just saying that. But we just saw here in Romans 9, specifically verses 10 through 12, um, Paul says, kind of just picking up, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived, had received children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
So Rebekah and Isaac are the parents of Jacob and Esau. It says in verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, here's, here's what happened, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And that last part was quoting Genesis 25 that we're studying right now. And so you look at that and we say, say well, why Jacob? Well, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then it says there, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It doesn't say not because of works, but because of Jacob's faith. It does not say that. It says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's God. She was told the older will serve the younger. So that's our conclusion to, to why Jacob. Because God chose him based on nothing in Jacob himself. And that helped us, we saw last week, that helped us to see that, well, okay, if that's what happened with, with uh, Jacob, well, then that must be what happened with his father Isaac. And if that's what happened with his father Isaac, then that's what must be what happened with Abraham. And if that happened with Abraham, maybe that was Shem and Noah and on back. Maybe God had specifically chosen all of them. And then we said, just briefly, if that's what happened with all of them, then maybe Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what happened with us. Maybe the reason we are recipients of God's covenant blessings is because God has specifically chosen us in order that his purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Maybe that applies to us as well. And then we looked at last week that that is exactly what the New Testament teaches about us. Ephesians 1 is what we mainly looked at, but it is all through there all through there, that it is God's choosing, that God is the decisive actor in our salvation. Do you get that? God is the decisive actor. It, it doesn't rest upon me um, in the end whether or not um, I, I get saved. God is the decisive actor, and that, that's what we're seeing here. This is, this is coming up. This is emerging in Genesis 25. And the reason I, I want to stand here is because if you understand the way the Bible works, um, God doesn't just from the beginning lay out, okay, here's, here's all that's going to happen, right? He doesn't do that. Uh, the, the Bible works in this way. It's known as progressive revelation. You've probably heard that term, progressive revelation. That is, God reveals little bits and pieces progressively, and God doesn't just forget about those things that he reveals. He builds upon those. So if we're now learning about this um, election of Jacob, this uh, election of all these people, then we have to know that the rest of the Bible, Genesis 25 and on, is going to build. It is going to progress in this way if the rest of the Bible is going to make sense for us. And so that's why I told you last week that we're going to park here for a moment. This, by the way, is, is known in uh, biblical or theological cir uh, circles as the doctrine of election. I mean, it's right there that God's purpose of election might continue. And so that's what we're talking about, the doctrine of election, that God is the decisive actor in our salvation. Not that we don't have any, any part in it, but that God is the decisive actor behind it all. And since Romans 9 uh, is, is our divine commentary on, on Genesis 25, we're, we're just taking a moment here to park and see, you know, in what context was Paul saying these things, right? 
because that, that's really important. I mean, there are uh, many, many, many cults out there that the way that they are begun is they take a passage and they yank it from its context and they say, boom, here, here's a truth. But they don't look at everything else in context. And so we want to do that. We want to look at this fact that God... Um, you know, uh, what does it say, that God's purpose of election might continue because of him who calls this, this election. We want to see that in its context to make sure we're understanding it correctly. I, I know this is a, a long intro, but I, I think it's um, worthwhile for a moment to just tell you um, my story a little bit with this uh, doctrine of election stuff. Uh, it's probably, I guess, 10 or 11 years ago now, God grabbed a hold of my heart in a powerful way. God, God grabbed a hold of me, and what that did to me is it made me just want to study his word. I had a hunger for his word, and then when I would learn things in God's word, I wanted to teach it to people. I mean, wonder how I got here, right? You know, uh, but anyways, you know, I wanted to teach people these things, and so it wasn't long before I ended up leading a Bible study with a group of guys that God was working in their lives as well. And, you know, I just kind of flipped through the Bible and put my finger down. Not really, but, you know— I chose to teach through Romans. I'll teach through the book of Romans. That's what I'll do. That'll be easy. And I remember um, as I'm teaching through Romans, it just kept popping up. This whole, I guess, this doctrine of election just kept on popping up. And I would try to find all these ways to make these statements fit my framework of thought and theology. And um, I would teach these things even. I look back and shudder <laughs> a little bit because I would find ways around what the text explicitly said. Um, but there came a point as I'm reading through Romans and studying through Romans that I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I said, it's just too plain that this is what it's saying. I can't find ways around it anymore, basically. And this was a big struggle for me because I, I grew up understanding that I was the decisive actor in my salvation. I mean, and this really, really, really troubled me. This rocked my world because it's like, well, okay, if I was wrong about this, maybe everything I know about Christianity, you know, is wrong. Maybe God's not even real. You know, I mean, it was this like kind of existential crisis for me uh, a little bit that, I mean, I, I just remember how many hours and hours and hours I spent reading God's word, reading books about God's word, and then going back to God's word and saying, okay, did they, did they get that right, what that book just said? And I finally came to the conclusion as I was teaching through Romans, like, this doctrine of election is true. It's right there in God's word all over the place. And I'm either going to say, okay, I'll listen to God and his word or, or I won't. So uh, as you can probably guess at this point, all of a sudden I had to kind of redact a lot of my past comments on scripture and say, you know, I said it meant this, but it really, what it was talking about was this, that God chooses us, that God elects us. And, uh, but I, I tell you all of that because I don't know where you're at with all of this. I, I don't. And I want you to know that I struggled with it. I struggled with it heavily. And there are still um, areas of this doctrine of election that are, are troubling for me because I have a finite mind that cannot grasp all of God's truth and, and make sense of it and connect all the pieces all the time. So I just want to tell you that I understand where you're at, if, if you're struggling with this. And I'll even tell you this, you do not have to believe me. You don't have to agree with me. You really don't. If, if you look at God's word and you say, nope, that's not what it says, then do not agree with me. Do not believe me. That's fine. I, I'm very serious. And, and if that's where you land, I can 
promise you that I will continue to love you. I'll continue to be kind to you. I will not um, ostracize you. I won't talk about you behind your back. And I mean, and if these things even bother you, I w- welcome you to come talk to me about them. You know, I'm a person uh, who is a child of the light by God's grace. I walk in the light. I don't hide things. I come up here every week and lay before you my understanding of God's word. And so if you're a child of the light as well, you can be open and honest with me. You can lay before me uh, what what you see God's word says. And so I, I just want you to feel comfortable even if you don't agree with me. I just want you to feel um, confident that, that this, this won't be a, a discipline time for you if you don't fall in line with me perfectly theologically. So I have only two requests for you if you're struggling with this at all. Number one, seek to know and believe the truth. Don't seek to, uh, you know, make your way that you believed correct. Seek to know God's truth. I, I beg you to do that. And then secondly... I'm asking you to not let this bring disunity into our church. Christ died. He shed his blood in order to to get rid of the disunity uh, between Jews and Greeks and that much more so, Jews and Gentiles, that much more so between us and us in this church. Do not let this become a disunifying thing. Don't let this become factions start to come up. Our our church has a history, uh, many of you know, and um, I'm just praying by God's grace that's not what happens this time when we cover this doctrine because I believe if you have Christ in you, you want unity for his church. And so I ask that you'd seek to know the truth and seek to not cause disunity. I don't know what's going on with the mic. Is everything still good? You guys hearing me well? I guess this one's not doing well. All right. <clears throat> so that, that was my intro. Very long, I know, but we're, we're, we're covering some, some big stuff here and, and uh, we will be for a while. Um, you know, I, I told you I'd cover Romans 9 next week. What I really meant was for the next couple of weeks, I sent uh, Alan a text last, I guess yesterday at some point saying, hey, here are the five topics I want to, co- or four topics I want to cover tomorrow. And then I said, oh, actually, I just remembered one more I want to cover. And then I sent him another text almost immediately. I said, yeah, I may only make it through that first topic. And uh, here we are. It's exactly what we're going to do. Um, that wasn't my plan, but we're just going to take this first key issue that we might uh, come up against or come, um, come in contact with when we think about this doctrine of election. And we'll be looking at Romans uh, chapter 9 and other areas of the Bible to, to see it. So let me tell you what this first key issue is, okay? This first key issue, um, op- opposition to this doctrine of election, is people believe this. And this is, this is where I was, by the way. We think... That even though all humans are sinners, we would all agree with that, that even though all humans are sinners, we might believe that we still have the spiritual ability to come back to God. You hear that? We, we believe that we're sinners. Yes, I was born a sinner. We believe that. I've committed sin. You're not thinking if you don't believe you've committed a sin, you know, um, we, we believe these things, we know these things, but we still sometimes assume that even though I'm born a sinner, even though I commit sins, I could still come back to God at any time. Anyone could come back to, to God at any time. They could simply repent of their sins and trust God. They could trust in what Jesus has done. They could trust in all that God is for them in Christ Jesus. They could just simply do that. 
They have the spiritual ability. But the question is, is that true? Is that true? Is it true that even though we're, we're sinners, that we could still come back to God at any time, you know, on our own abilities? And so that is what I want to cover today. <laughs> that is what we'll be covering. We'll be answering that question. And I want to kind of give you um, my first point here, and it will show you kind of where I'm going, I believe. So number one, if you're writing in your bulletin, is this. Without election, no one would be saved. Without election, no one would be saved. So I'm laying my cards on the table. That's uh, the direction I am going here. Now, I want you to hear that point correctly, okay? What I did not say is, without believing the doctrine of election, no one can be saved. Um, this isn't whether or not you believe or agree with me on this doctrine for whether or not you can be saved. There are many, 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 many uh, people who will be with me in paradise and will be hanging out for eternity who won't agree with me on this. Truthfully, I, I truly, truly, truly believe that. No, don't say that with the slightest bit of hesitation. But what I do mean by this is simply that without the reality, without the reality of election being true, you could not and would not be saved, and no one could or would be saved. That's what I mean. Without election, no one would be saved. If there were not this electing that took place, no one would be saved. So kind of coming back to our question, do people have the spiritual ability, the spiritual ability to come back to God? Do people have the ability to repent, to turn away from their sins do they have the ability to believe in Christ Jesus and be saved? That's our question. Look with me again at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. This is uh, mainly what we'll be looking at today. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we're going to pause there. So what's going on here? What's what Paul even talking about? Well, if you look back uh, one chapter, you don't need to, but if you look back one chapter, Romans 8, Paul has just spent that entire chapter exalting in this incredible salvation that we as Christians have. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? He's exalting in these truths that, that, that the sorrows and the, the, the pains that we might feel today are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's exalting these things. And he's exalting in this fact that, uh, that, that God, uh, that, sorry, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's exalting in these truths. We are saved from God's condemnation. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have an amazing uh, future awaiting us, and nothing will separate us from that future in God, in Christ Jesus. But then we come to this, and, and Paul becomes sorrowful here in chapter 9. He, he begins lamenting, right? He says, 
There, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What's Paul lamenting about? Well, you look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. So he's talking about Israel there. Uh, the individual Israelites, the Jews. Now that's a powerful passage that I'd love to look at his uh, evangelistic zeal right now, that even he could be accursed, cut off from Christ, if that would mean that they would trust in Christ Jesus, these individual Jews, these individual Israelites. Because you think about it, I mean, the, Paul was a Jew, right? Paul was an, uh, an Israelite. These were his friends. These were his family these were the people he'd grown up with, he'd worked alongside, he'd walked alongside. But what was their outcome now that the Messiah had come? Well, who was it that had Christ crucified? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Who was saying that? It was the Jews. Who was it that after uh, Jesus was crucified, died, and then buried, but then uh, all of a sudden the, the tomb is empty? Who was it that paid the guards to say that his disciples came uh, and stole the body away while they were asleep? Who was it that did that? The Jews. That's Matthew 28, 11 through 15 is the chief priests of the Jews who did that. And it even says there that, that the, the, the Jews, it says, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They're, they're trying this cover-up even of this unbelievable miracle. And who was it that was most persecuting the Christians? I mean, at least at this point, later on, uh, Nero tries to blame the, the burning down of Jerusalem on, on the Christians, and that persecution happens. But before that, it was just the Jews persecuting Christians. The, the Romans didn't care. Uh, you know, um, about, about this little religious sect. It was the, the, the Jews that were, were taking these Christians who were coming into the, the temple and coming into the synagogues and preaching Christ. It was the Jews who, who were, uh, you know, taking them forcefully, uh, beating them, stoning them even to death. In Acts, we see martyrdom take place uh, initially with Stephen, but it just goes on and we see even Paul was one of these persecutors um, as a Jew, he felt he was being a good Jew by persecuting Christians and persecuting Christ, right? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's what Jesus said. You're persecuting Christ. And so, as we know, there are certainly some individual Jews at this time who had trusted in Christ Jesus, but for the most part, the overwhelming majority were rejecting the Messiah and rejecting this salvation. And this is, again, very hard for Paul. And, and he goes on just to kind of set us up for what he's going to talk about in Romans 9 to kind of say, this is really crazy that the Jews are rejecting Christ. Why? Look at verse 4. Here's how crazy it is that the Jews were rejecting Christ. He says there, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's main point here, I actually have listed out here what all of those are talking about, but I don't think I have time. Paul's point here is, if any 
people, if any individuals who are part of a, a group of people had an advantage over the rest of the world for being able to accept the Christ, it was the Jews. They had all the advantages. They were the Israelites, right? They were descended from Abraham. I'll just give you a brief over, overview. They had the adoption Israel was God's chosen people, his chosen son even. We see that in Exodus chapter 4. Israel is my firstborn son. We see there next uh, the glory. God's glory had literally been revealed in the Shekinah glory way. I mean, the light, the fire on Mount Sinai as God came down. You think about Moses who would come back to the Israelite people with his face glowing with the glory of God. These people had seen the glory of of God. They had the covenants. Ah, the covenants. This is the good stuff. This is God's promise of salvation. And we even get to more promises later, but these amazing covenants that were given only to the Israelite people, starting, you know, with Abraham on. There's the covenant of uh, Noah. That's for all people there. But they had these covenants that were were for their people. You have... um, so many other things. The giving of the law. They had this guardian uh, to keep them from defiling themselves even spiritually. They had the worship. God had given them a prescribed way to worship him rightly. And that worship, by the way, done through sacrifices and cleansings and things like that, was all pointing to the coming Messiah. By the way, so was the covenants and so was the law. All of those were pointing to the Messiah. Jesus Christ would come. Uh, it says they're the promises. Once again, you have all these promises. And then in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God had promised, again, we could look at this more in depth, but we've already talked about it so much in our study of Genesis. God had promised that his salvation would come through these patriarchs, right? Through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Through you, all the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And even later, you look at with uh, uh, David, God promised that, that the Messiah would come through the line of David, right? In the tribe of Judah. And then we see uh, both in Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke, we see a genealogy of Jesus. And guess who you will see in both of those? You'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You'll see David. If anyone should have looked at at Jesus and said, there he is. There's the one that, that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David. There he is. He's in line. We've been given these promises. We've been given these covenants. We've had this sacrificial system of worship that, that points to him. If anyone should have seen the Christ and, and had this, the ability to trust in him, it was the Jews. It was the Israelites. They had the revelation. They had the information They had the promises. If anyone, this is what I think Paul is kind of talking about here, if anyone could turn back to God on their own power, it was the Jews. If anyone could have repented and believed in Jesus Christ without any special help from God, it was these kinsmen of Paul, the Israelites. Yet they are the ones who most hated and most rejected Jesus. 
You know, it's interesting. You say, well, why did they do that? Why did they reject Jesus? And the Bible actually gives us answers. This is great. This is further down in Romans chapter 9. Go to verse uh, 30. Verse 30. Romans 9, verse 30. He says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. He says, so did the, did the Gentiles get salvation, but the Israelites did not? And the answer is yes. Verse 32, why? Here we go. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Continue on to chapter 10 there. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ, for Christ is the end of the law for, the right, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me summarize what Paul has just said here. Why did the Israelites, the vast majority of these individual Israelites, not uh, obtain this righteousness? He says there, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. He says in chapter 10, but not, uh, sorry, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what was this stumbling stone that the Jews were, were, were stumbling over, right? That's what he said there that Isaiah says, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. What was this stumbling stone? Well, it was the fact that Jesus was offering a free, unmerited salvation. You guys, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. You guys can stop all these works trying to earn God's favor is what Jesus taught. In him alone was this sufficiency for salvation and the Jews did not like that. Why? Because they wanted their own righteousness, not the righteousness Jesus could give them. They, they wanted to earn their salvation rather than have it come to them as a free gift. They wanted credit for their salvation rather than God getting all the glory. What I see here is that the, the, the Jews, these, these Israelites, could not get over their fleshly desires. They were in bondage to these desires, to, to, to have this credit, to have this glory, to have this earning and merit. They wanted that. That's what, that's what we see here. They, they wanted it as if it were based on works. They wanted to establish their own righteousness. But they had every spiritual, um, what would you say, spiritual um, advantage, and yet they still stumble over that. What does that mean? That means that their hearts lacked the spiritual ability to repent of their sins and trust of Christ Jesus their Lord. 
They couldn't turn away from this works-based righteousness. They couldn't trust in Christ Jesus for their salvation. Do you see that? Do you see that that's what Paul's talking about here? They have all these spiritual benefits in Romans 9, 1 through 5, all these spiritual benefits, and yet they cannot even trust in God. And this is the case he's making as he continues through Romans 9. But then the question is, for us, as we look at this, we say, cool, that's the Jews, whatever. Well, what about us? Do we have the spiritual ability to turn to God, to, to turn away from our sins and to trust in Jesus? Do we have that spiritual ability or was that just the Jews? Romans 3, can you turn there real quick? Romans 3, verse 9, since you should be real close. <clears throat> Paul answers that question uh, with no, no ambiguity. Do we have the spiritual ability to turn from our sins and trust God? Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So he's addressing this same question um, or the same issue. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks. So that's talking about Jews and everyone else, basically. Um, Jews and Greeks are under sin. You think about that, are under sin. That's like there's a ruler and then he has subjects under him. They are under sin. They are being ruled by sin. Are we any better off? No, we've already charged that, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, so he's quoting the Old Testament. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I'm going to pause there for a second. Let that sink in for a moment. No one understands. No one even seeks for God. No one. Jews, Gentiles, no one seeks for God. People might seek spirituality, enlightenment, or even a, a, a God of their own making. But the Bible makes it very clear that on our own, not a single person seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside Together they have become worthless. <clears throat> no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul says this is all of us, Jews, Greeks. We don't understand. We don't seek for God, the way of peace. We haven't known, and there's no fear of God before our eyes. Let me ask you, does that sound even remotely like this idea that, yes, we're sinners, but we could come back to God at any time? Well, if we just have a good enough heart, you know, that's how we think of it. Oh, he's got a good heart. No, we've all got a very bad heart. We've all got a very, very, very bad heart, a sin-sick heart. It says there, they are under sin. They are, we're sold. We're uh, being ruled by sin. 
This is sounding a lot like we don't have the spiritual ability, the spiritual desire, the spiritual appetite even to seek for God, to, to repent of our sins because we hate them, to, to, to cling to God as if he is our only hope. It sounds a lot like we don't even have the ability to do that, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's talking about all of us. Paul said it this way. We, I mean, we know these verses, I know, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I'll read it. And you, this is before you were a Christian, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Satan, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Without election, no one would be saved. Why? Because we have sin-sick, embondaged hearts, we understand, again, I, I can't go too far into these things, but when Adam fell, we all fell with him. Adam was the representative head of the human race, and he fell into sin. And everyone who uh, was generated after him, all his, um, his offspring, his and Eve's offspring after him, were born in sin. Paul says it like this, Romans 5, 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's talking about this sin-sick heart. This death, this spiritual death, this spiritual inability, this spiritual uh, distaste for things of God was given to us. And then we know that uh, it says there, because all sinned, we not only are born with the sin nature, but then we agree with our sin nature. We agree with our slave master when we then commit those sins by our own will. And what we never see in the Bible, never see in the Bible, is this idea that at some point God, uh, you know, magically made us, you know, to where we're neutral. To where, okay, well now they can choose me and I'm speaking of everyone, all of humanity, God, God, we just don't see that. What we see is this type of thing. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritually dead people don't understand spiritual truths. They don't seek for spiritual truths. They seek for a spiritual spirituality of their own making, but they don't speak, seek for spiritual truths. They can't even understand them. And so what I want to drive home to you and what I believe Paul is pointing out here is without election, no one would be saved. Left to our own devices, we would choose... I'll, I'll, Martin Luther said this. I'll see if I can remember the quote. Martin Luther said... Left to our own devices, men would not only reject God, but they would seek to kill him, and they did. Right? <laughs> we wouldn't only just reject God, we actually would crucify him on a cross. 
left to our own devices, without God's special intervention in our lives, no one would be saved. And so we might, you know, stumble over the fact that God chooses people, but I would say, well, if God doesn't choose people, no one's making it. No one's making it. But that's the bad news. But the good news is, number two, with election, God saves some. With election, God saves some. And that, again, is we're tying into this doctrine of election. Without it, no one would be saved. But with it, with this gracious doctrine of election, God saves some. Romans 10.1, we read it a moment ago. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Why is Paul bothering to pray to God for this salvation? Couldn't they just choose at any time? No. Paul understands and is teaching us this doctrine of election. These people are spiritually incapable of repenting of their sins, repenting of their works-based righteousness. That's what they struggled with. Repenting of their sins and trusting God. They were spiritually incapable without this special intervention from God. But Paul prays to God, believing that God answers prayer, prays to God that he would intervene in their lives, that he would specially intervene in these people's lives. Because, you know, uh, without election, no one can be saved, but with election, anyone can can be saved. Any, any individual can be saved by God's grace, by God's special intervention. Now, we, we need to do this a little bit. Where did Paul learn this stuff? Did, did he just like, you know, uh, just sit there, uh, you know, just thinking philosophy all the time, and so he, he made this stuff up? Well, I believe he learned it from Jesus. I'm going to move through this relatively quickly, but I want you to see Paul is just teaching what Jesus taught. Uh, John 3, if if you want to go there, you're welcome to, but I'm going to be moving relatively quick. John 3, verses 1 through 6. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this is key, what he says next. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What what that last part there means, we'll look more at it. What that last part there means is, if it's up to the flesh alone, all that will be born is more fleshliness, more sin. Sinners sin. Sinners make sin. Sinners plan to sin, and they commit those sins. But it says there, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So people need to be born again. Let's think about that analogy for just one second. How much credit can you take for your birth? 
Did you have anything, anything at all, your, your, your physical birth, sorry, did you have anything at all, any say in your birth? Were you able to decide yes or no, I want to be born, what date you want to be born, how, how easy or hard that pregnancy would be? No, you did not. So it's interesting that Jesus uses this physical phenomena to, to be an analogy for this spiritual phenomenon, namely the, the new birth, this being born again. And so you would say, well, if, if someone had absolutely nothing to do with their physical birth, it would seem Jesus is drawing this connection that they could have absolutely nothing to do with their spiritual birth either. It seems like the decisive work has to come from outside of you, just like it did in your physical birth. Your, your parents, a glimmer in their eye, you know, um, you get the, the idea. There's, the work came from outside of you. You had nothing to do with it. No say. There was no, well, he'll be a good child, or, uh, so, so we'll let him be born. There was nothing foreseen there. Listen to this. Um, again, so that was John um, 3. John 6, 63 says this. It is the spirit who gives life. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Hmm. John 1, this isn't Jesus. That was Jesus. The John 6 was. But John 1, this is um, John as he's you know, narrating, setting up what he's going to give in the rest of the gospel. But he's inspired by the Holy Spirit when he says this. <clears throat> In, uh, sorry, John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who has the right to, to be children of God? Those who were born not of the will of man, the desires of man, but of God. So you can see just from the book of John alone, this is very clear that there has to be this outside special intervention that someone is born again with spiritual life, this spiritual sensibility, this spiritual appetite for God. I'm going to just be, be quick with this, but here are some examples of this happening. There are examples of this happening in the New Testament. There are more but I'll just give you two. <clears throat> Acts chapter 16, verse 14. This is the, the beginning of the Philippian church. It says there, verse 14, Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, purple goods who was a worshiper of God. This is, she was a, not a Jew, but she was trying to worship God. It says here, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said of God. This wasn't her flesh hearing. She, by the way, you know, becomes a Christian. She's baptized and all of that. But we see here that the Lord opened her heart specifically. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, speaking more generally um, of the Corinthian church, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It was God who was the decisive actor in all of these places. Paul gave the gospel. Apollos continued to, to shower on that gospel. But it was God who made that, that plant of faith, that, that plant of spiritual life 
spring up. Let me just ask you, what are the key components of salvation from our point of view? I've said them many times already this sermon. What are the two key components that we are told to do in order to uh, be saved? Anyone? Repent and believe. That's right. Repent and believe. Jesus said uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's just that plain. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Trust in me, Christ Jesus. So that's what we need to do. But where does that spiritual ability come from to repent and to believe? I'll look at believe first. Philippians 1.29, Paul says this of the Philippian people. 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, in context, that's talking about different things, but he's saying you have this gift. You have this thing that's been granted to you. It has been granted to you that you believe in him. Do you hear that there? It'd make more sense probably if you're looking at it. Philippians 1.29, look at it later. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This belief was granted to them. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Grammatically, I mean, we can look at it in the English, but in the Greek, it's that much more obvious that the this, this is not of your own doing, is talking about the faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. I mean, look at it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What's, what's the, this noun there that that's, that it's pointing back to, the this? It's faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, it's more evident in the Greek, but I, I think you can still see it there in English. The Ephesian church was saved by grace through faith, and that faith to believe in Jesus was a gift from God. So that's faith. It was granted to them that they believed. You have this uh, faith that is a gift from God. What about repentance? These are, again, uh, a little harder to, to see because he doesn't just plain say it straight out. But Acts 11, verse 18. Acts 11, verse 18. This is talking about the, the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. It says, when they heard these things, about Gentiles being included, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Why didn't they say, oh, good, the, the Gentiles are repenting? It's not what it says. It says God has granted repentance that leads to life. And Paul even talks about false teachers, hoping that they get this repentance from God. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, <clears throat> Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we are spiritually incapable. The flesh is of no help at all. Yet we 
need to repent of our sin and trust in Christ Jesus. And we see here that it is God who grants repentance. It is God who grants that we believe in him. It is God who gives this gift of faith. And it's a gift so that no one can boast, even in their faith. So we see here, I hope I'm making it plain, that if election were not a reality, if God did not specially intervene in our lives, we would all be without hope. All of us. No one would be saved. But by God's grace, he does intervene. And that's how we see here with election, God saves some. I had so many other verses and things that I pulled out of here. But you can think about, you know, it'll be uh, easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, well, if that's true, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Sorry, I don't have the reference for that because I took it out because I wasn't going to say it. But here we are. I'm going to conclude there. That's all we need to see for today is that we are absolutely without hope, without God specifically, specially intervening in our hearts, opening our hearts to hear, to listen to the gospel, opening our hearts to uh, repent of our sins, opening our hearts to believe in the gospel. That is all God's work. It is decisively him who does it. Yes, it is us who put our faith in Christ. Yes, it is us who repent of our sins but it's God who, who made us able to do those things and granted that faith and repentance. So I want to say that we need to meditate on that fact alone for a little while. Because, you know, we, we might get caught up in this fact that God doesn't choose to save everyone. God chooses to save some in this special electing way. And that can bother us, but before we even think about that fact, what we need to be is blown away by the fact that God saves anyone. We don't think of yourself as a damsel in distress. You are a rebel against God. You are in bondage, in love with your sin. Saying, God, I don't want you. I want my own gods. I want to worship my own gods. I want to give glory to things other than you. You are a rebel, not a damsel in distress. And yet God chooses you. God grants repentance of that rebellion and grants the faith to trust in him for salvation. More than being troubled by the fact that, that not everyone gets chosen, we should be blown away by the fact that anyone receives this salvation. God does not need you. God does not need anyone. It would be perfectly just of God to consign everyone to hell. No exceptions. It is a gracious thing that God would choose us who are so rebellious, so sin-sick that we can't even trust him. We can't even turn from our sin. I'll tell you, I am personally broken by this doctrine. Anytime I feel good about myself, I can just remember I am a sinner saved entirely by grace. There's no 1% Jeff in it. There's no admixture of, of Jeff's good. And if you are saved today, if you have repented of your sins and you've trusted in Jesus, the same is true for you. God has chosen you. 
He has chosen to pour his love and his grace on you. I don't know about you, but I've sinned grossly against God in so many ways, rebelled against him in so many ways, yet he has loved us. Let that truth sink into your heart deep this morning. I would recommend as we have this prayer time that you'd ask God, am I taking any of your credit for my salvation? If so, Lord, humble me. Lord, humble me. Let me see that it's only you and worship you for it. Let's pray.